And now we look at Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah 4, verses 1 through 14, the entirety of the chapter. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus that you will meet us here in this place in this special way through the powerful working of your Holy Spirit. We confessed, I believe in the Holy Spirit. We do every Sunday with the creed, and we pray that we will indeed take to heart and believe the Spirit of God and believe him more. Believe him as the scriptures reveal the truth about Christ and as he has given us this inspired word. Now may the Spirit of God open our hearts and illumine its page and make us tender, we pray. Make us malleable in your hands. May the Spirit of God teach us who believe in the Lord Jesus to hate sin more, to love righteousness more, to be Christ-centered. May the Spirit of God help us to believe and repent and grow and mature. And we pray for those in our midst today who are unbelievers, who do not know Jesus, and we ask that the Holy Spirit will open their hearts, indeed take away the stony heart and given heart of flesh upon which is written your law, that through the regenerative power of the Spirit of God they also may be granted saving faith to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 4 of Zechariah. This is the word of God. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might, nor by power, But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, people of God, this is a sermon on the work of the Holy Spirit and revival. 
And may I speak personally to you that, uh, especially over these last few months, as the Holy Spirit has worked within my heart, I've had a deepened understanding of my own inadequacies and failures and my need of the Holy Spirit's work in my life. And so what I bring to you is brought to you as I expound a text, also very experientially, because, as I have said, the Holy Spirit, working within my own heart and life, is doing this great and wonderful thing of simply knocking out all the props so that I understand once again and afresh that I am completely dependent on the Holy Spirit in my Christian life and in the ministry that he has called me to in his church. The text addresses the sense of slow progress in God's kingdom. Ever felt that? Slow progress in the church, slow progress in the kingdom. Look at the church in our country. Look at the church in Western civilization. Look at your own life, and you have a sense of the slowness of the progress. Sometimes you wonder if you're growing in grace at all. And this text reminds us that God's kingdom is in His hands, that the Spirit empowers the weak and the weary, and that our lives are in His hand. And the text reminds us never to minimize the role of the Holy Spirit. Now I ask you, do you know these things? When we speak of the Holy Spirit, is this something foreign to you? Do you know the working of the Holy Spirit within your life? Believers do. And believers understand that this indeed is something deep and personal and rich and experiential. But even believers in the Lord Jesus Christ can become unhappily cold and callous. They can't stay there. But I ask, do you know these things? Do you know the work of the Spirit of God within your heart and within your life? Do you ever feel essentially what is revealed to us in this text, that there are times in which we are stretched and weary and there is little progress and we don't see how the kingdom will go on, whether it be the kingdom in our own hearts and lives or the kingdom of God in the world? Do you know the reviving work of God's Spirit in your heart? Do you pray for the reviving work of God's Spirit in His church? Well, I think the text addresses these very things. Now, first of all, let's look at the symbolism of the text, the symbolism. We have in this text a very strange night vision, one of several night visions brought to Zechariah the prophet. This is, of course, as the people of God have returned from Babylonian captivity, and they are commanded to build the temple. The candlestick of gold is there in this vision with a bowl on top having seven lamps, each lamp with seven feeding tubes. And if I understand it correctly, we have 49 in total, giving oil perpetually. There are two olive trees that are beside the candlestick pouring a constant supply of oil. And somehow the oil doesn't need to be beaten out. It just flows from the olive trees right down through these tubes. And in addition, we have the text mentioning two anointed ones in verse 14. These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And the prophet inquires the meaning of all of this in verses 4 and 5 and elsewhere in the text. So that's the symbolism. Second thing I think we need to do in order to understand it is to ask, what do the symbols mean? We have the symbols. What do the symbols mean? Well, comparing Scripture with Scripture enables us to see clearly the broad lines of the meaning of the symbolism of the text. The lamp, I think, very clearly represents the church in her Old Testament form. In the holy place, the seven lamps were lit every evening and burned through the night. 
light shining in a dark place. And when we come to the New Testament, there's one passage that helps us to understand this very well, and it's Revelation 1.20, in which we find that the lampstands represent the seven churches. And I think that it's clear as you read Revelation 1 that Revelation 1 is borrowing from the book of Zechariah in its symbolism. And so the symbol in Revelation seems to be borrowed from Zechariah and therefore interprets Zechariah for us. The lamps represent the church that is called to shine. And the oil? The oil is commonly a symbol for the Holy Spirit in Scripture. I'm sure you know that. The anointing of kings, the anointing of of prophets. Oil is commonly a symbol for the Holy Spirit in the Bible. And as it is clearly associated with the anointing and power of the Holy Spirit, clearly it means that here the oil represents the Holy Spirit. Telling us that the Holy Spirit is the source of grace. That the Holy Spirit is the source of power. That the church radiates grace only because of the source, the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is our perpetual source of grace and our perpetual source of power. And then we have the two anointed ones in verse 14. And interestingly enough, though he wants to know who they are, all we are told is that these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And it's really not explained. But as you read the whole of the book of Zechariah, again, I think this is clear because there are two representatives of the Lord that are highlighted in the book. We have Joshua, who at this point is the high priest of his people. The name of the high priest in this era was Joshua. And we have Zerubbabel, who is the civic head of God's people. In other words, he holds the the position of government, something like a kingly office. And so I think really that's what we're being told here. In essence, we have the priestly and the governmental or the kingly offices that seem to be represented in the two anointed ones. And so we have the symbolism, we've explained the symbolism, but we need thirdly to ask the meaning of the vision. What does the vision mean? In verses 4 through 7, And uh, I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Now here's the heart of it. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace unto it. Now those are the core verses that help us to understand the meaning of the vision. The Lord will see to it that you will finish this temple. In verse 7, O great mountain, that is to say great obstacles. Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. He shall bring forward the top stone. That is to say the top stone to the temple will be added. The temple will be built. The temple will be completed. What I have called you to do, I will empower you to do. And he says the eyes of the Lord are on this project 
with favor. For we read in verse 10, For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. It actually will come about. These are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Which when we compare with chapter 3 verse 9, we see means God's omniscience and His providential care. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua on a single stone with seven eyes, I I engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. And so God's eyes are upon it. That is to say, His omniscient watchfulness and care. So what we're being told here is that the meaning of the vision is pretty simple. All the obstacles to the rebuilding of the temple will be removed. Enemies will be overcome. Hindrances to God's kingdom will be leveled. There will be holiness among people. There will be growth in grace. There will will be the fulfillment of the promises. And Zerubbabel, who is the civic head of the people, Zerubbabel, who has few visible resources, everything seems to be against him in the rebuilding of this temple from within and from without. The obstacles are like a mountain, the text tells us, But just as the Lord declared regarding John the Baptist, so here. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. The obstacles within, the obstacles without, no matter how great they are, they look like Swiss Alps, but they will look like the cornfields of Illinois. Mont Blanc will become a soccer field. Whatever the opposition is, the Lord has said, not by your might, not by your power, not by your effort, not by what you do, but by my spirit, I will enable my kingdom to go forward. My plan and purpose for this stage in redemptive history will come about, and you will rebuild that temple. And then we have the Lord's rebuke that comes to those who despise the church and her feebleness in verse 10. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So those who came back, who knew what the former temple had been like in its glory, who said, we will never have a temple again, it will never be glorious again. God says, you'll see the plumb line in the, in the hand of the civic leader. The walls are going to be built. And indeed, by implication, as we study the scriptures, this great temple is going to be built in a far, far greater way in the new covenant era. God's work does not depend upon human resources. Do you see? All that was being done for the kingdom seems so incredibly small. It was a day of small things. But to God, small things are glorious. To God, small service done for Him is wondrous. To God, who shows His might in our weakness, His glory and strength in our incapacity, it's the small things through which He works in order to bring about the wonder of His extended kingdom. And so the principle here is crystal clear. Do not judge God's work by man's standard. 
it looked very small. It looked impossible that that temple would be rebuilt. They were judging with the eye of man. They were walking by sight and not by faith. But people of God, they and we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. We are called to see through the lens of Scripture. We are called to see through the lens of the promises given to us in the Word of God, in which when we look around at the sad state of the church today, we can despair and we can be depressed or we can say, God is still at work. The principle is clear. Do not judge God's work by man's standard. To despair is to deny God. And the promise that is given in this text is Zerubbabel, the top stone will be laid. As we read in verse 7, the top stone will be laid and there will be shouts of grace, grace to it. So that those very ones who now are despising the day of small things, the day will come in which they will see the top stone that will be placed and they will shout, this is all of grace from first to last. And that's God's point. It's not by might nor by power. It is by my spirit. It's not what you do. It's not your strength. It's not your effort. You're weak. You're incapable. But I am almighty, says the Lord. That temple is going to be built because I say so. The kingdom is going to be extended because I promise it. All of this is going to happen, God says, because I'm seeking my glory. And that's what matters in his kingdom and in this world. And so God's eye was upon them. And God's eye is upon his church now, is it not? The all-seeing eye of Jehovah is upon his work now. Is it not just as it was then? That eye that, uh, of whom T.V. Moore says, the sleepless regard which God bestows on his church. My, I like that. The sleepless regard that God has bestows on his church. The church is still under his providential care. You are under his providential care. Your small, small growth in grace may be great in the eyes of a sovereign God who is leading you to your eternal home. Because God says, you are under my eye. That's what the text means. We look at it initially and say, who can understand this? But it's really not difficult, is it? You get it, don't you? Yes? Do I need to go back all through this? <laughs> you get it, right? All right. Now, I hope that you can see how this applies to the success of the gospel today, to the spread of the kingdom today, to missions today, to preaching today, to revival today, to your own Christian living today. Is not God's eye upon us now? Does he not watch over us now? Will he not bless his church in her witness now? Is it right today to judge God's kingdom and God's work by human standards? Was it right then? No. Is it right now? No. We walk by faith and not by sight. We are to judge by what God says, not by what we see. So let's take these considerations into our fourth point. Here we have obstacles. The obstacles seem so great. I don't mean only the obstacles then, the rebuilding of the temple. I mean the obstacles to the extension of the kingdom now. 
we have the total depravity of man. We have a culture that is going down and down and down and down and down into corruption. We have governments that oppose the gospel, principalities and powers, our own weakness, our own temptations, our own sins, and we can become depressed and we can become overwhelmed or even worse, we can become careless, just plain, I don't care. And I think we have three principles. Think of them as applications, if you will. Three principles here for the success not only of the temple then, but for the success of the gospel in the world now. So that's the fourth thing. Three principles that assure the success of the gospel found in this text. First of all, the success of the gospel is assured because it is directed by Christ. Now here in verse 14, if I'm right, when he says in verse 14, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth, literally sons of oil, two sons of oil. If they are, and I I think this is fairly plain, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Joshua, remember, was the high priest And he held an office that pointed beyond himself, and that was Jesus Christ, the high priest of his people. And so when Joshua acted, he acted as a type pointing ahead to Jesus. Christ is our priest, a greater than Joshua the priest then, far, far greater, infinitely greater, who died for us, his people, who will receive the reward for his agony on the cross, whose blood is the labor for our pardon and for the forgiveness of our sins, who is the intercessor of his people. Joshua was used of the Lord in order to bring to fulfillment this great thing in the past, now our great high priest, who intercedes for us in heaven, will assure the success of God's kingdom. And then we have Zerubbabel, who held the civic, the position of civic leader. He was, for all practical purposes, king. He was the governor. But we have one who has come, and the government is on his shoulder. His name is Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He rules, he reigns, he's sovereign over all things. Someone has said, as priest, he expiates sin. As king, he extirpates sin. As priest, he purchases salvation. As king, he keeps his purchase. And so what what Governor Zerubbabel had begun in building the earthly temple will be completed in a far, far more glorious manner by the true Joshua and the true Zerubbabel, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the builder of his church. The gospel will succeed, the kingdom will spread, because a greater than Joshua the priest has come, a greater than Zerubbabel the governor has come, and it is Jesus Christ, the priest king of his people. 
So I ask you, as you look, and sometimes I know your hearts must be filled with discouragement from time to time. Look at our culture, look at the church, look at the mess. Is God at work? What is he doing? My friend, through it all, he is fulfilling his sovereign purpose of bringing his people to himself. He is king, he is sovereign over it all. He is the priest who has a people and he will call that people. But another principle... The gospel will succeed because God is in the small things. He really is. He's in the small things. In verse 10 we read, For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. So there are small things in your life. You see that your service is small. You see that your growth is small. You see that your feeling is small. That, but what does God promise in the midst of those small things? Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's in the small things in your life. Spurgeon somewhere says a diamond is a diamond if it be ever so small and Christ's people are Christ's people, let them have no, never so little grace. A diamond is a diamond even if it's a little diamond and what you have in your heart is greater than a diamond. It's the Spirit of God Himself. So God is in the small things in your life and He's in the small things in the church too. Oh, how I wish you might say that God would do greater things, and I pray for it too, more wonderful things in the church, in this church, in the church in our country. Yes, I do too. I think we should pray for that, but this small beginning, laying stone by stone by stone, cutting the stones, bringing the stones, laying the stones, hard, arduous work, small things, you look at it and say, however will this thing be complete? We just don't have the resources This small beginning of temple building was a forerunner of someone and something greater. You see, you look at the church and the country and the mess and the depravity, and you say, what can I do? And I think everybody here will say, well, I can do this, I can pray, right? And are you praying? You say, it's such a small thing. Well, is it? 1859, God sent a mighty revival to Northern Ireland, Ulster. The 59 revival. I'll tell you how it started. There was an old couple. They got together every day for years and they prayed. That was it. They prayed. And in their old age, God blessed and sent This powerful revival. Some of you older folk here, you say, I'm getting so old and I I don't know what to do, how to serve the Lord. Great example. Great example. Two elderly ladies prayed on the Isle of Lewis. Now this was 1949. This is modern history. Two elderly ladies, one was stooped over with rheumatism, the other was blind. And there they were on the Isle of Lewis, large island off the coast of Scotland. Northwest. And they prayed. 
And they prayed, and they prayed. Oh, God, there are no young people in our churches anymore. And they prayed. Oh, God, people are not interested in the gospel anymore. And they prayed. The presbytery had tried. The presbytery put out warnings to the people. People weren't listening. People weren't hearing. Village after village, hamlet after hamlet. The gospel was not believed. The churches were emptying. These two ladies, they prayed, they prayed, they prayed, they prayed. And one day, God answered their prayer. Minister that was called to help came there three days and stayed three years. And he said, God, God stepped down. And suddenly men and women were gripped in the fear of God all over the parish. He said, you met God everywhere. And he said, there was no human organization, but there was an awareness of God. And this is what happened. It really did happen. One night there was a prayer meeting. A fellow read, I think, from the 15th Psalm. God the Holy Spirit came upon that group. And then all over the island, people were inwardly moved to go to church. 11 o'clock at night, there was a dance, 100 young people. They felt overwhelmed with a sense of God. They all went to the church. From village and hamlet, all over the island, all the churches began to fill. And there was a mighty movement of the Spirit of God And people were converted among the young people, nine of whom became ministers of the gospel, if I remember correctly. Converted, soundly converted. The bar closed that night, never opened again. Never. The same men who were there drinking every night, now were in the prayer meeting every night. And it stuck and it lasted and there was virtually no backsliding and the effects are seen on the Isle of Lewis to this day. And if you were to ask those people, what was it that moved you that night to go and hear the gospel, to go to church? They'll say, I can't tell you. It was just a strange inward compulsion. Some of them couldn't get to the church. They went to the local uh, constabulary where the policeman was, who was a godly man. They knew he was a godly man. They went there because they felt convicted so that they could hear the gospel from him. So this preacher comes, I'll stay three days, he stays three years. Small things, two little ladies, weak, not long to live, praying, because you see, small things are not in our hands, small things are in God's hands. And oh, the sad state of the doctrine and life of the church today, yes, but God still works. So what can I do? You can pray for the oil to flow through the pipes. You can pray for the Holy Spirit to re-enter the lives and ministries of church members and of the church and of the preaching of the gospel. That's what you can do. Not as works righteousness, but as dependent upon the Lord. The Ulster Awakening, I wish I had several hours with you this morning. 
I mean, really. What you read everywhere about this history, the power of prayer began to be known and felt and seen. The old prayer meetings began to be thronged and many new ones established. This is in one place. There were on the average 16 prayer meetings every night in the week in this one town throughout the bounds of that one congregation, about 100 weekly. Mr. MacArthur says that everywhere faith and prayer, mighty prayer, seem to be the first and deepest lesson of the revival. Guy writes to his bishop, Anglican minister, people are coming to faith in Jesus. Bishop must have been incredulous. He says, why should it be thought a thing incredible that God should raise the dead? And then he says to his bishop, listen to this. Let us believe more in the Holy Ghost. You can pray for the oil to flow. Well, I'm going to skip about half the sermon. Let's go to the next, next point. The success of the gospel is assured. I've already intimated this. The success of the gospel is assured because it is in the hands of the Holy Spirit. You see, Christ will accomplish His work. The ascended Christ poured out His Spirit upon the church in the New Covenant, Acts chapter 2, read by Pastor McDonald this morning. And that means, just as we see in Zechariah 4, the mountain, the obstacle, is no obstacle if the Holy Spirit intends to move it. Who do we think God is? That God is simply in the hands of of weak, impotent human beings that we determine these things? No. If God, the Holy Spirit, determines to remove the mountain, to level it into a plain, it will be done. So Christ will accomplish His work. And Zechariah 4 is about the powerful work of the Spirit of God. Verse 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The top stone will be laid. Now this is temple imagery. And it is right for us to remember that the temple imagery we see here is more greatly fulfilled in the temple imagery of the New Testament. In which living stones are built up together into an holy church. And the promise is that temple will be built, the day will come, the top stone will be placed. And the promise is to us, the Holy Spirit will convert His people, will call His own, will build those living stones together, and the day is going to come in which the last of God's elect will be saved, and the top stone will be added, and we will all shout grace, grace to it. The Holy Spirit will do this. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood will never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. It's not by the church's political broker. It is not by cleverness. It's not by newfangledness. It's not by the sword. It's all by oil. 
It's by the divine power of the Holy Spirit. And periodically, and I'm telling you these things because I want your hearts to long for it. And some of you don't know the history. But periodically, the success of the gospel is accelerated by heaven-sent, Holy Spirit-inspired revival. God taking the ordinary means, the preaching, the sacraments, our worship and prayer, and accelerating it so that its influence is powerful in the church and powerful in a culture. The Reformation of the 16th century is that. There was darkness everywhere. God said, let there be light, and there was light. So may I remind you that the Holy Spirit is no mere influence. Are you tempted to think of the Holy Spirit as just an influence out there? He's no mere influence. He is the blessed third person of the Trinity. He has a will. He has an understanding. He has a power omnipotent power, all of the attributes of God because He's God. And you know something else? The Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us, can be grieved. And as I have searched my own heart and as I look at the church and the needs before our culture today, and I say, why, 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 why? I'm rather convinced that in doctrine and in life, The church in our country, and so many of us as individuals, we have grieved the Holy Spirit. So I'm not looking to government first and saying they've wrecked everything. I'm looking to the church. Because I firmly believe that as a rule of thumb, as the church goes, so will our culture. And we want to be respectable in the eyes of the world. And we're compromised. And we're living compromised lives in which the things that God values are not the things that we value. So would we see the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in our midst? Do you want that? Well, then let us ask for cleansing. Let us ask to live in fellowship with him. Let us depend more upon his omnipotence. Let us rely upon his promises. Let's love what he loves. Let's hate what he hates. Let us walk closely and not grieve the Holy Spirit. Let us believe him. And then if you ask me the question, How will you know that the Holy Spirit is really at work in my life? How will you know that the Holy Spirit is really at work in the church? I will tell you how. Turn to John 16. John 16. I think that Jeff said this to the young people this morning, but I had no idea he was doing it uh, until just as we mentioned together Friday what we were doing this morning. The Sunday. And I said, Well, I'm mentioning the same text, brother. John 16. We won't take time to read the whole thing, but in verses 13 and 14, this is what Jesus says When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. 
for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus tells us in no uncertain terms that this is how you know that the Holy Spirit is at work in the church. The Holy Spirit glorifies Christ. How do you know the Holy Spirit is at work in your life? Because you are seeking to glorify Christ. How do we know that the Holy Spirit is at work in the church? Because we are striving to glorify Christ. Because there is more of Christ. More preaching of Christ. More teaching of Christ. More living for Christ. More hatred of what Christ hates. More love of what Christ loves. Because Christ is exalted in our lives. That's how you know. It's not tongues and prophecy, and it's Christ. That's how you know the Spirit of God is at work in the church. So I long for this, and I pray for it pretty much every day, probably every day. I pray, pray, pray for this. I think every day, yes. Can't remember missing a time for many years. Is anything needed more than the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in our lives and on His church? D. Martin Lloyd-Jones tells a story. I'll give it to you. Just a sample. John Livingstone. John Livingstone lived at the beginning of the 17th century in Scotland. John Livingston was a very able man, as most of those men were. Those early reform ministers in Scotland were a succession of tremendous men from the standpoint of ability, learning, and knowledge. But the things that, are characteri- that characterized them above everything else was their knowledge and experience of this spiritual power and unction. Do you even know what that means? John Livingston, as I say, was a very fine scholar and a great preacher. He had to escape to Northern Ireland on account of persecution, and while there he had some experiences of a revival. But his day, great day, came in 1630. There was a communion season at a place called Kirkashots, just off the road between Glasgow and Edinburgh. These communion seasons would last many days and were characterized by much preaching by several visiting preachers. On this particular occasion, they had all felt from the beginning right through to the Sunday evening that there was something unusual. So the brethren decided to have an additional preaching service on the Monday, and they asked John Livingston to preach. Now John Livingston was a very modest and humble and godly man, and so was fearful of the great responsibility of preaching on such an occasion. So he spent most of the night struggling in prayer. Ever done that? He went out into the countryside and there continued praying. Many of the people were praying also, but he was in a great agony of soul and he could find no peace until in the early hours of Monday morning, God gave him a message and at the same time gave him an assurance also that his preaching would be attended with great power. So John Livingston preached on that famous Monday morning, and as a result of that one sermon, 500 people were added to the churches in that locality. It was a tremendous day, an overwhelming experience of the outpouring of the Spirit of God upon an assembled congregation. The remainder of his life story is equally significant and important. John Livingston lived many years after that, but he never had such an experience again. He always looked back to it, and he always longed for it, but it was actually never repeated in his experience. Don't you see, revival is something that 
is not meant to last. But God sends it periodically to extend his kingdom and to grow his kingdom. And I think we should long for it today. Because let me tell you, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, I am convinced, is the great need of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in our culture, in our time, in our day. It is the Spirit only who can bring the dead to life, the Spirit only who can make His Word fruitful. And we need it massively today. So turn to Luke 11. I wish I were in Mr. Valini's class when he uh, teaches this passage. But I'm teaching a different one, so I'll have to get it from him. Conversation, I suppose. Luke 11, verse 5 and following. Luke 11, 5 and following, and he said to them, this is Jesus, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him, and he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his prudence, because of his, I'm sorry, his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if, he, if his son asks for a, a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Now look at verse 13. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now, I think that means the powerful, wonderful influence of the Holy Spirit. So here's the challenge. And I hope that it's a challenge that actually transforms you. No sense in being challenged if it doesn't change you, right? So here's the challenge. Let us believe more in the Holy Spirit to exalt and uplift Christ in our lives, in our midst, and in the church. The one who opens our hearts to see that God is not a means to an end. God is the end. Why do we send missionaries? To convert the heathen? Ah, that's sucking. We send missionaries for the glory of God. Why do we want to see the gospel extend? Because... Our great concern is the exaltation of Christ. And so whether by the ordinary and the everyday moving slowly along, or whether accelerated, taking the ordinary and accelerating it in revival, it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And God has promised, and let us keep our eye on this promise, that he will bring all and the last of his elect into the temple he's building. 
and the top stone will be added. And you and I, in our amazement at the greatness of God, will cry, grace, grace unto it. And God's people said,